Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today I'm delighted to, div- to divulge that we'll be talking about epistolary literature. I was inspired to explore today's topic by an article that I read in Smithsonian Magazine a couple of years ago, titled, This Trunk Stuffed with 17th Century Letters is a Historian's Dream, by Aaron Blakemore. It's every historian's fantasy, a perfectly preserved cache of valuable letters. It's almost always a pipe dream, but once in a lifetime, the fantasy becomes real. That's the case in the Netherlands, where 2,600 letters have been discovered inside a postmaster's trunk. The letters, which were written and sent in France, Spain, and the Spanish Netherlands between 1689 and 1706, were never delivered. Their recipients weren't found, refused delivery, or never paid for postage, reports Maeve Kennedy for The Guardian. Their loss is history's gain, though. The huge cash is being hailed as an extraordinary resource, especially for scholars curious about the lives of ordinary people of the era. A worldwide team of academics is diving into the huge cache of letters contained within the linen-lined leather trunk. The trunk also contained valuable accounting books that will help scholars better understand the finances and postal routes of the era. Kennedy explains that that the trunk, which made its way to a Dutch museum in 1926, contains letters from all kinds of people. The collection includes letters from aristocrats, spies, merchants, publishers, actors, musicians, barely literate peasants, and highly educated people with beautiful handwriting, and are written in French, Spanish, Italian, Dutch, and Latin. The physical letters themselves, which were sometimes stuffed with forget-me-nots and other memorabilia, are as interesting as their contents. In a release, the research team explains that the system of intricate folds is known as letter-locking, and it presents a real challenge for scholars. Not only are the letters sealed with unique wax seals which captured the fingerprints of some senders, but also they were folded to be their own envelopes. Historians don't know much about the once prevalent custom, so researchers are using x-rays to read 600 unopened letters without disrupting their folds. Other previously opened letters are being unfolded and studied, revealing ingenious origami-style folds. The letters that have been studied so far contain tales of loss, heartbreak, and hope. Many were refused by their recipients, who would have had to pay for postage. In another release about the find, a scholar from Yale cites a letter written on behalf of an opera singer to a wealthy merchant. I am writing on behalf of your friend and mine, and she realized as soon as she left the opera company in The Hague to go to Paris that she had made a terrible mistake. Now she needs your help to come back to The Hague. I could tell you the true cause of her pain, but I think you can guess. Did the singer ever get the help that she needed? We may never find out, but reading her unopened mail means we'll never forget her. Now, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Because I'm thinking I'd love to read those letters. A link to the signed, sealed, and undelivered project website is in the show notes. And for more information, here's a quick note from one of their partners. 
1926, the Museum voor Communicatie in The Hague acquired a 17th century trunk of letters. The trunk once belonged to postmaster Simone de Brienne and his wife, postmistress Marie Germain, a couple at the heart of Europe's early modern communication networks. It contains an extraordinary archive, now known as the Brienne Collection, an estimated 2,600 letters sent to The Hague between 1689 and 1706. None of these letters was ever delivered to their intended, intended recipient, and in fact, 600 of them still remain unopened. The vast majority of the letters originate in France, as Brian and Germain were jointly responsible for delivering all mail from the French kingdom to the Hague, to the Hague. but the collection also includes a number of letters from regions that fell within their wider remit, in particular Flanders, Brabant, and Geneva. As a result, most letters are in French, although the Brienne collection contains a small number of letters written in English, Dutch, Latin, Spanish, Italian, and Danish. Why were the letters never delivered? A major obstacle before the invention of postage stamps is that recipients, and not senders, were responsible for postal and delivery charges. But if the addressé were deceased or absent, or rejected the letter, no fees could be collected by the postmaster. The letters in the Brienne collection still bear witness to this simple fact. Many have scribbled on them in Dutch, refused. Additionally, a number of letters ended up in The Hague only accidentally. Addressed to La Haye en Turin or La Haye en Flandre, these letters were mistakenly bundled with those for La Haye en Hollande by the French postal services. Others did not have The Hague as a final destination, but were addressed to London, Copenhagen, Berlin, Frankfurt, Warsaw, Hamburg, Stockholm, and other European cities. Although postmasters usually destroyed such dead letters, the Briens preserved them, perhaps in the hope that someone would retrieve the letters and pay the postage. Tellingly, their nickname for the trunk was The Piggy Bank. The Briand collection freezes a moment in time, allowing us to glimpse the early modern world as it went about its daily business. The letters represent the thoughts, cares, and dreams. There are missives by ambassadors, dukes and duchesses, merchants, publishers, and spies, but also by actors and musicians, ordinary lovers, struggling refugees, and by women as well as men. The Briand collection will be especially useful, therefore, to researchers studying the letter-writing practices of social classes beyond the elites, and for exploring the transnational links between early modern France and the Dutch Republic. A distinctive aspect of this project is that it seeks to preserve, record, and analyze the material features of the letters found in the Briand collection, especially the folding patterns and closing techniques that built varying levels of security into these letters. Because the letters have been stored folded and have never been repaired, they offer researchers a unique opportunity to investigate in to investigate letter locking, the art of folding and securing an epistolary writing substrate, such as paper, to function as its own envelope or sending device. 
The Briand Collection's letters have been folded in a variety of intricate forms, and the signed, sealed, and undelivered project will incorporate this information into the EMLO catalog by developing a new set of metadata standards. Again, the website for this project is included in the show notes, and I highly encourage you to visit, although I'm also warning you that it is so fascinating you could spend hours exploring. They are scanning in all of the letters so you can see what the originals looked like, and I'm sincerely hoping that they will eventually get around to translating and publishing the entire collection. In the meantime, would anyone care to learn Dutch or French with me? I'm only half kidding. Now, before we go, I'd like to share with you an excerpt from one of my favorite epistolary works, A Venetian Affair by André de Robelin. Side note, I'm sure I have and or will mispronounce names in this episode. Just please be advised that I don't do it on purpose. It just happens to be one of my many shortcomings, and I hope you'll forgive. Also, I'm apparently getting sick, and thus I sound super stopped up, and I apologize for the quality of my voice today. Anyway, I picked up a copy of this beautiful tome from Half Price Books when I was in college, For those of you who don't have half-price books where you are, I heartily apologize and hope you have an equally awesome and affordable used bookstore option nearby. I personally love it as I always find find some treasures there. And I'll go ahead and let this author describe the book to you in his prologue. Some years ago, My father came home with a carton of old letters that time and humidity had compacted into wads of barely legible paper. He announced that he had found them in the attic of the old family palazzo on the Grand Canal, where he had lived as a boy in the twenties. Many times my father had enthralled my brothers and me with stories from his enchanted childhood— There had been gondola rides and children's tea parties and picnics at the Lido, and in the background the grown-ups always seemed to be drinking champagne and giving fancy dress balls. Equally romantic romantic to us, though much more melancholy, was his account of how my grandparents' lavish and extravagant lifestyle had begun fraying at the edges. By the early thirties, art dealers were dropping by more and more frequently— Large, empty patches appeared on the walls. Pieces of antique furniture were carried out of the house. Even the worn banners and rusty swords our fierce ancestors had wrested from the hated Turks were sold at auction. Eventually, my spendthrift grandfather sold off the palace floor by floor, severing the family ties to Venice and leaving my father so bereft that he yearned for his Venetian heritage for the rest of his life. He never lived in Venice again, but even as an older man, he continued to make nostalgic pilgrimages to the places of his childhood and especially to that grand old house, which had long ceased to belong to us, but where the family still kept a few old boxes and crates. The de Robelon family is actually of Piedmontese origin. The Venetian connection was established at the end of the 19th century when Edmondo de Robelon, a my very tall and rather austere great-grandfather from Turin, married my great-grandmother Valentina Mocenego, a formidable Venetian grand dame with beautiful black eyes and a very sharp tongue. The Mocenigos were one of the old ruling families of Venice. They gave seven doges to the Republic, my father never tired of repeating to us children. 
Of course, the glorious days of the Venetian Republic were long gone when my great-grandparents married, but the last Montenegos still had palaces and money and beautiful paintings. So the impecunious de Robelance moved to Venice after World War I and fairly quickly ran through what remained of the Montenegro fortune. My father, having grown up in the fading grandeur of Palazzo Montenegro, came to revere his Venetian ancestry more than the Piedmontese. To him, the box of letters was a small treasure he had miraculously retrieved from his Venetian past. And I remember well the look of cheerful anticipation he had on his face when he arrived at our house in Tuscany and placed it on the dining room table for all the family to see. The letters were badly frayed and had wax marks and purplish traces of wine on them. They looked intriguing. They were not the usual household inventories that occasionally surfaced, like time-worn family flotsam in some forgotten recess of the Palazzo in Venice. We pried them open one by one and soon realized they were intimate love letters that dated back to the 1750s. Some pages were covered with mysterious hieroglyphs that added mystery to my father's discovery. We spent a rainy weekend cracking the strange cipher and trying to make some sense of the first of the first fragments we were able to read. I remember we were wary of delving into secrets buried so long ago, yet we labored on because the spell was irresistible. At the end of that long weekend, I went back to Rome, where I was then working as a journalist, while my father took on the task of deciphering and transcribing the cache of one hundred or so letters in his possession. What eventually emerged from his painstaking labor was the remarkable love story between our ancestor, Andre Mimo, scion of one of the oldest Venetian families, and Justiniana Wynne, a bright and beautiful Anglo-Venetian of illegitimate birth. The letters revealed a deep romantic passion that was at odds with the gallant, light-hearted lovemaking one often thinks of as typical of the 18th century. It was also, very clearly, a clandestine relationship. The curious-looking dots and circles and tiny geometric figures scribbled across the pages were a graphic testimony to the fear the two lovers must have felt lest their letters fall into the wrong hands. When my father began to dig around Andre and Justiniana's love story, he soon found traces of their romance in the public archives in Venice, Padua, and even Paris and London. It turned out that students of 18th century Venice had first become acquainted with the relationship through the writings of Giacomo Casanova, Casanova, uh, who had been a close friend of both André and Justiniana. In the first years of the last century, Gustav Gugic, the great Casanova scholar, identified the Mademoiselle 95, who figures prominently in Casanova's memoirs, as Justiniana. Then, in the 20s, Bruno Brunelli, a Venetian historian, found two small volumes of handwritten copies of letters from Justiniana to Andre in the archives of Padua. He wrote a book based on those letters and lamented the fact that he had not found Andre's letters as well. He consoled himself with the notion that they could not possibly have been as absorbing as Justiniana's. Judging from her correspondence, he said, it did not appear that André had the temperament of a great lover. Other Casanova specialists were drawn to André and Justiniana. 
Minnie combed old bookshops and antique stores, hoping to find Andre's letters, but in vain. The stash my father had stumbled upon as he rummaged in the attic of Palazzo Montenegro proved to be the missing part of the story, the other voice. Clearly, these letters had at some point been returned to Andre by Justiniana and preserved by the family, but they were by no means all of Andre's letters. Many had been burnt, and many more had probably been left to rot and then thrown away. But those we had were rich enough to provide a far more complete picture of the love story, and to disprove Brunelli's contention about Andre's temperament as a lover. Once my father finished transcribing the letters, he tried to publish them. Time went by, and I wondered whether he would ever complete his project. My father did not have the natural inclination to put together a book. His real talent was in telling a good story. Over the years, I heard him talk about Andre and Justiniana again and again as he polished their romance into a perfect conversation piece. How vividly he comes back to me now, glass of red wine in hand, charming dinner guests with yet another elegant account of his Venetian love story. He revered Andre, who went on to become one of the last in a long line of Venetian statesmen. And, ladies' man that he was, he adored Justiniana for her looks, her spirit, and her lively intelligence. My father rooted for them with genuine affection, even as he explained to his listeners, who were perhaps not sufficiently well-versed in Venetian laws and customs, that it had been an impossible love. It was unthinkable in those days for a prominent member of the ruling elite, such as Andre, to marry a girl with Justiniana's murky lineage. She had been born out of wedlock. Her mother's background was checkered at best, and her father was an obscure English baronet and a Protestant to boot. For this reason, my father would explain, they saw each other in secret and often wrote to each other using their strange alphabet. Whereupon he would bring his audience to a peak of excitement by scribbling a few words in the private code of Andre and Justiniana. In the end, the treasured letters became, above all else, an excuse for my father to ramble on about his heroes and the city he loved so much. And they probably would have remained just that if events had not taken a sad and completely unexpected turn. In January 1997, an intruder entered my father's apartment in Florence and bludgeoned him to death. It was a senseless, incomprehensible act, a violent end for a gentle, life-loving man. After the funeral, my brothers and I stayed in Florence for a week in the hope of being of some assistance to the investigation. During those difficult days, the story of Andre and Justiniana could not have been further from my mind until it suddenly appeared in the local newspapers. The Carabinieri had found my father's laptop computer open on his work table, so they had seized it as evidence, together with the floppy disks on which he had transcribed the letters. They went on to leak information about Andre and Justiniana to the press. In an even more bizarre twist, the Carabinieri sent a few agents up to Venice to check into possible leads. The murder investigation led nowhere, and two years later it was abandoned. My father's belongings, including Andre's original letters, the discs with the transcriptions, and the notes on the cipher were returned to us. 
By that time, I had moved to Washington as the new correspondent for the Italian daily La Stampa, but I made a promise to myself that I would do my best to carry out my father's original plan to publish the letters in one form or another once my assignment in the United States was over. My resolve was further strengthened when I found another trove of letters in a library just a short distance away from my new posting as foreign correspondence. James Reeves Childs was an American diplomat and scholar who developed a minor passion for Justiniana as a result of his studies on Casanova. In the early 50s, he was in Venice looking for the unexpected nugget that might enrich his collection of Casanoviana. He came upon a small volume of 54 letters from Justiniana to Andre, which added another fascinating chapter to their love story. He never got around to publishing them, although a few excerpts appeared in his newsletter, Casanova Gleanings. Ambassador Childs died in 1988, having bequeathed his collection, including Justiniana's letters, to his alma mater, Randolph-Macon College in Ashland, Virginia, a mere two hours away from Washington, D.C. That part of Virginia was already very familiar to me. Childs, and the coincidence would have delighted my father, came from Lynchburg, where my mother had grown up. So for me, the quest that had begun several years earlier with the letters my father had found in the attic of his childhood home in Venice ended, rather eerily, a few miles up the road from my mother's birthplace in America. The early 1750s, the period when André and Justiniana first met, was a particularly poignant moment in Venice's long twilight. The thousand-year-old republic was less than five decades away from its... from its swift collapse before Napoleon Bonaparte's invading army. Signs of decline had been evident for a long time, and no reasonable Venetian believed the Serenissima, as the the Republic had been known for centuries, could reclaim the place it had once occupied among the powerful nations of the world. Yet, Venice did not seem like a civilization that was drawing its last breath. On the contrary, it was living a vibrant, even self-confident old age. The economy was growing, the streets were busy, and the stores were filled with spices, jewelry, luxurious fabrics, and household goods. On the mainland, agriculture and stock farming underwent revolutionary changes, and wealthy Venetians built grand villas on their country estates. The population was rising, and Venice, with its 140,000 inhabitants, was still one of the most populous cities in Europe. An experienced and generally conservative government composed of a maze of interlocking councils and commissions, whose members derived from the most powerful families, ran the city in a manner that had altered little for centuries. Venice's ruling class remained an exclusive caste, whose symbol was the Golden Book, the official record of the Ven- of the Venetian patriciate. Its obstinate refusal to let new blood into its ranks, coupled with a deep-seated resistance to change after such a long and glorious history, was weakening its hand. But, as one historian has observed, the future of this state founded on an intelligent form of paternalism still seemed assured. The middle years of the 18th century also saw an extraordinary flowering of the arts that hardly fits the image of a dying civilization. 
In fact, it turned out to be the last glorious burst of Venice's creative genius, and what a feast it was. Tiepolo at work on his celestial frescoes at Caoresinoco, Goldoni writing his greatest comedies, Galupi filling the air with his joyful music. There had never been more amusements and distractions in Venice. One pictures the endless carnival, the extravagant balls, and the theaters fairly bursting with boisterous spectators. The stage was flourishing, there were seven major theaters operating in the 1750s, and they were filled with rowdy crowds every night. The most popular meeting place of all, however, was the Ridotto, the public gambling house that was famous across Europe. Venetians were in the grip of a massive gambling addiction, and they were especially hooked on Pharaoh, a card game similar to Baccarat. Pharaoh stood for Pharaoh and was the king card. There were several gambling rooms at the Ridotto, with as many as 80 playing tables in all. They opened up on a long, candlelit hall, the Sala Lunga, where an eclectic crowd of masked men and women mingled and gossiped about who was piling up sequins that night and who was piling up debt. The mask, perhaps more than anything else, was the symbol of those carefree days. It had become, by then, an integral part of Venetian attire, like wigs and fans and beauty spots. Masks came in two kinds— the more casual black or white moretta that covered only the eyes, and the cloaked mask or balta, which hid the entire head down to the shoulders. Venetians were allowed to wear masks in public from October until Lent, with the exception of the novena, the nine-day period before, before Christmas, and everyone wore one, from the doge down to the women selling vegetables at the market. The custom added a little mystery and intrigue to everyday life. The Seven Years' War, uh, from 1756 to 1763, between the major European powers, would soon come to darken spirits and change the atmosphere in the city. The Venetian Republic, neutral throughout this long conflict, which put an end to French expansionism and marked the rise of Great Britain as the dominant power, was going to feel adrift and ultimately lost after the war. But until then, there prevailed a sense that things would go on unchanged as they had for centuries, and that life should therefore be enjoyed to the fullest. In those happier years, the house of Consul Joseph Smith, a rich English merchant turned art collector, was one of the busiest and most interesting places on the Venetian scene, a meeting point of fashionable artists, intellectuals, and foreign travelers. It was in Smith's art-filled drawing room at Palazzo Balbi on the Grand Canal that André met Justiniana sometime in late 1753. He was 24, she was not yet 17. Side note, we will not talk about how creepy that is. Uh, André was tall and vigorous, handsome in a Venetian sort of way with the long, aquiline nose that was typical of many patrician profiles. His sharp mind was tuned to the new ideas of the Enlightenment, and he was possessed of the natural self-confidence that came with his class, assured as he was of his place in the Venetian oligarchy. His elders already looked upon him as one of the brightest prospects of his generation, and indeed he must have seemed quite the dashing young man to a girl eight years his junior. Ugh, again, side note, gross. Uh, wise beyond his age, and so much at ease in Consul Smith's rather intimidating salon. But Justiniana, too, stood out in those assemblies. 
Behind that innocent, awestruck gaze was a lovely girl brimming with life. She was bright, alert, and possessed of a quick sense of humor. Andre was instantly taken with her. She was so different from the other young women of his set. Familiar, in a way, for after all she was a Venetian born and raised, yet at the same time very distinctive, even a little exotic, not only on account of her English blood, but also because of her unique character. Andre and Justiniana met again and again at Consul Smith's. The physical attraction between them was plain to see. Soon they could not bear to be apart. But something deeper was going on, too. More magical and mysterious. It was the blending of two souls that were very different and nevertheless yearned for each other. My passion for him swallowed everything else in my life, Justiniana recalled many years later. Andre, too, was overwhelmed by his feelings in a way he had never been before. Alas, the earliest part of their love story has remained blurred. If they wrote letters to each other during that time, as is probable, those letters have never surfaced. But in the later correspondence, there are echoes of their first enchanted days together, as they chased each other in the rooms of Palazzo Balbi, searching for a darkened corner where they could hold each other and kiss in the full rapture of new love. From the very beginning, the love story of Andre and Justiniana bore a note of defiance toward the outside world. Carried along by the sheer power of their feelings, they pursued a relationship in the face of social conventions that were clearly stacked against them. It is true that by the mid-18th century, as pre-romantic stirrings spread through Venetian society, young men and women who loved each other were beginning to challenge the rigid customs of the aging republic. The number of clandestine marriages, secretly sanctioned by the church, saw a considerable increase in those years. But the costs of breaking the rules were still very high. As one historian has put it, any patrician who attempted a secret marriage put himself quite inevitably in direct conflict with his family and institutions. By bringing dishonor on himself, he renounced any political career and lost the privilege of seeing his own children recognized as members of the patriciate. He might lose all economic assistance from the family and be disinherited. The clandestine marriages that did take place mostly involved impoverished patricians or members of the lesser nobility, who did not have much to lose by defying their elders. To Andre, with his family history, his education, his strong sense of duty toward the Republic, the idea of secretly marrying Justiniana seemed completely irrational. Apart from the shame it would have brought on his family, it was hard to see how the marriage would have survived from a practical point of view. Where would they have lived? What would they have lived on? Despite her youth and her intense emotions, even Justiniana was realistic enough to see that if they fought the time-honored customs of the Republic, they would be crushed. A few months into their affair, Justiniana's mother stepped in. Mrs. Anna had one pressing task, which was to find a suitable husband for her eldest daughter. This meant she had to keep Justiniana at a safe distance from hot-blooded young Venetian patricians who might try to seduce her for the sake of intrigue and entertainment but would never marry her, while she looked out for a sensible, if less glamorous, match. She could not allow Justiniana to wreck her plans with a relationship that, in her eyes, had no future and would only bring dishonor upon the family. 
So, in the winter of 1754, she told André never to call on Justiniana at their house again, and forbade the two lovers from seeing each other. Mrs. Anna's band seemed to spell the end of their forbidden love, but their time-worn letters have continued to surface over the years in the archives in Padua, in the attic at Palazzo Mocineco, at Randolph-Macon College, to reveal that, in fact, this was only the beginning of a remarkable love story. Now, I grant you it has been several years since I have read the full book, but I'm inspired to try it again, and I do have memories of it being very readable um, and, and interesting even for being a nonfiction tome. So I will be including a link to uh, an Amazon version of that book if I can find it in the show notes. And I hope you will give it a shot, uh, give it a shot, or try your local used bookstore and pick it up. I, I think it's worth it. It's a very good book, and um, definitely an interesting insight into 18th century Venice. Um, that's going to be it for today. I had hoped to share some more about different epistolary works with you, but I think I'm going to save it for another episode. Um, because there is so much out there. There's such a wealth of material. I got inspired by rereading the introduction to uh, Max Brooks' World War Z, which, if you have not read it, is a great novel. Um, It's so different from anything else I've read. They did make a movie of it uh, with Brad Pitt, and the movie is good. The movie is watchable and interesting. It is very different from the book. They are both good in different ways, uh, but I would like to talk about that book in the future, so I think I'm going to save it for another episode about epistolary literature. Once again, thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, tell your enemies, and you know, maybe it'll be some just revenge. Thanks again. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. What's your favorite book? Thanks for listening. Have a great day.